Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Soli. Would you uh, pray with me? Uh, join me in this confessional prayer together. It prepares our hearts for the Lord's Supper, which we'll be having together later. Let me pray for us first. Our God and Father, we are so overwhelmed with you. We're so privileged to be able to come into your presence, to express our love for you and for one another. It's a joy, actually, to hear the, the clamor of your people fellowshipping, saying hello, getting reacquainted, enjoying one another, loving one another. Lord, we do love each other and we love you. We love you. And we thank you for what you've accomplished for us. You've done it all. You've provided everything. You've given us all that we have. There's nothing left undone by you. And so we come with that, essentially nothing. And we pray this prayer together. Our Father, we have so often trivialized the gospel by failing to see the depth of our own sin. You know in totality how we have sinned against you by the rebellious words and we have spoken, by our evil thoughts and by our self-centered actions toward others. You know all of the envy, hatred, and unforgiveness in our hearts. You know all our tainted motives and the, all the good things we have left undone. Gracious God, we come humbly before you through Christ our Savior, with empty hands and with broken hearts, asking you to forgive us and transform us so that we will love you with all our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen. Amen. Uh, you heard uh, Soli read to you from Acts chapter 8, and it was just a few verses there in 8, and that's all we're going to talk about. Uh, you know, this fall season leading up into Christmas and, and even now here at the beginning of the year, we've been talking about uh, this question. Really, the question's been asked many different ways. You know, how did Christianity survive, right, as a world religion? How did it make it? And we, we talked about that pattern of, of the Lord's word going forth and then, um, then hitting a wall of persecution, right, some sort of opposition. And then, again, the Lord's showing up in a big way and 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 overcoming that opposition and the word going forth again. And it's this back and forth cycle as we see. And it just, it's amazing to see how the Lord continues to come through for his church. And, and, and this is what happens throughout the, the centuries, right? I mean, we see it in our own lives. We see it in the pattern in our own lives, how we, we, we go through this cycle of, of, 
of really feeling close to the Lord and, not, and then not feeling close to the Lord and then feeling close to the Lord and, and seeing amazing things happen and then feeling that opposition and feeling like everything's against us. And, and it's, that, it's that pattern even in our own lives that we recognize and, and uh, we long to be closer to the Lord. You know, through all of it, we long to want to be visited by him in a sense um, one of the journals of George Whitfield, he was a famous uh, evangelist preacher, and he wrote in his uh, journal one time that during his sermon, he said, the Lord, he said, God, the Lord came down amongst us. And, and he, what he, he, he didn't mean that the Lord wasn't there present like he is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But, but what he said was, and I'm quoting from Martin Lloyd-Jones, another preacher that is writing about Whitfield. He said, George Whitfield was a man who rarely preached without being aware of the unction and the power of the Holy Spirit. That means just, just being filled with the Spirit and just feeling that, the heaviness and the weightiness of God in the presence of God's people in, in the setting where the preaching of the word was taking place. And he says, but there are were variations even in his own ministry. And there, he says, at Cheltenham, something quite exceptional happened. So exceptional that he makes a note of it. God came down, he said. Oh, yes, they had been enjoying the presence of and the blessing of God before, but not like this. Something wonderful had happened. God was in the very midst. God came down. And so today I want to I want us to see something about you know what does it look like when God comes down you know and and I long to experience that too here with us in 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 the very presence here why not why not and so uh that's what I'm getting at this morning's text it shows us what happens and how there's an increase of understanding and evangelism takes place and anointed worship goes on and great compassion for the poor. We see it happening in the text. And the result of it, we read in verse 8, is this. So there was much joy in the city. Much joy in the city. So <laughs> what will bring joy to the city? That's the question we really ask, right? What's going to bring joy to the city? And uh, <laughs> there's some very secular answers like, you know, maybe a winning football team um, or many, uh, a few thousand new jobs. Uh, but there's something that the text tells us. The text tells us. Um, and you might think it's this. It, uh, it's the end of verse 6 into 7. He says, and they saw signs that he did, meaning Philip, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. You might think it's that. You might think it's the joy that comes through those, the, those signs and wonders. But, but according to the text, it's not that. Uh, I'm going to make a bold statement up front here, right in the beginning. And most people today wouldn't maybe say this, but preaching Jesus will bring joy to this city. And, you know... You, you get a lot of pushback on a statement like that. But I'm telling you from what we see here in this text, that's the thing that brought joy to the city. And, and we'll get into that. So uh, I've got just a, a quick outline of three points. And the first point here is what he proclaimed, what he proclaimed. So Philip, 
We know a little bit about Philip from weeks past because Philip was one of those commissioned to be a deacon uh, in the first century church, and he served the church in that way. And we notice right away that Philip goes out preaching. It says in verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, we know why he was scattered. Uh, they were scattered. Let me, let me, those who were scattered went about preaching. And, uh, and I want to tell you what it means to proclaim Christ after you're scattered. Um, because, you know, if you remember, what happened earlier was that Stephen, one of the other deacons, was preaching. And uh, some religious leaders didn't like it. They called him in to give an account. He preached before them and said, hey, um, and you guys were the ones that, that killed the Lord of glory. You know, it's, it's you, you guys were the bad people. And so they got furious with him. They dragged him outside the city and stoned him, piled rocks on him. And so at that point, the church went, right? I mean, scattered. They scattered. Um, and <laughs> I think it's interesting that persecution was the thing that caused the church. See, up until now, they were only preaching in Jerusalem. And, uh, but now they scattered like a bunch of rats off of a sinking ship. Um, it says that Saul of Tarsus uh, was ravaging the church. In verse 3, we didn't read it, but it's verse 3 of chapter 8. Paul, the Saul, who became Paul, but now he, he's just Saul of Tarsus. He's a wiry little mean-spirited rabbi and he's chasing here's what it says it says Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison imagine that that's Paul the apostle right before he's converted how many of you done terrible things before you were converted right how many of you done terrible things since you've been no uh, this is not a confessional um but this means that Saul didn't just, you know, he didn't just ravage. He, he, he destroyed the church, right? He, the, the word here, uh, it's to destroy, it's used for wild, wild boars. In other words, he, he, he ravaged, he destroyed, he devoured greedily is really a better term. That's what he was doing. And, and so it doesn't just picture a, a, a guy, an administrator, sitting, writing letters, you know, to his congressman or something. You know, it, it does, it's, he's not just telling other people to do dirty work. No, Saul led the charge, right? Going in the streets, down the streets, into houses, pulling people out, arresting them, throwing them in jail. He was after them. And so how did the Christians react? They ran. They ran, Right. And Philip headed to a city called Samaria. And uh, this was all in God's plan, by the way. It was all his plan because, you know, sometimes God has to use certain things, like even persecution, Stephen's death, the death of one of his saints, to expand the gospel. Imagine that. Put that in your theology. Right? He would kill one of his own, right, in order to proclaim his name. In a new place. Wow. Um, I, it fits. It, it should fit in your theology. It should fit in, your, in, 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 in how you think about God and what he's capable of. It should fit. 
It's, it's all over the pages of Scripture. And if he wouldn't hold back from doing that to his own son, right? What about us? Use us, Lord. Use us. And so uh, Jesus told the apostles to go and make disciples in Matthew 28. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That was his command. And, but they hadn't done that. They hadn't moved out of Jerusalem. They hadn't moved. They hadn't, I mean, they faithfully proclaimed there in Jerusalem, but they hadn't moved on. And so the church was not to be confined just to Jerusalem. God had to scatter them, so he did. He did scatter them. And Jesus had instructed his disciples that they were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world, right? In, 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 uh, right here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what we're seeing. So it's a natural thing. This isn't something, it shouldn't come to a surprise, in other words. It should not have surprised any of them that now they were out in other places preaching. And so in God's providence, he causes them to run and be scattered. And Philip went to Samaria. And he preaches Christ. It says in verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So they didn't just go run and hide, right? They began to preach in other locations. And, you know, what does it mean now to preach? What does it mean to preach Christ? Um, now, I'm not exactly sure what Philip preached, but I'm sure he preached something like this. I think he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he said, you know, the gospel is the, that Christ lived the life that you should have lived and died the death you deserved to die. I think, I think he talked about that. I think he said, now, because Christ has died the death that you deserve to die, and he's risen from the dead, now you are accepted into the arms of God, your Father, the Beloved, right? Without reservation, God receives you now because of what Christ has done. I mean, I think he preached that. You are now an adopted son or daughter. I think he told them that. I think that the gospel is that you are more sinful, more evil, more weak than you ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, at the same time, you're more valued, accepted, and loved than you ever dared hope. Does that make sense? On the one hand, when you think of yourself and you begin to really take assessment of who you really are on the inside, you realize that you're, you're sinful, you're evil, you're weak. There's a lot of gaps in there. Yet, at the same time, you're more valued, accepted, loved, received by the Father. And so those two things are happening at the same time, and if, 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 you, if, if you err in one direction or another, you begin now to, to get out of balance, right? If you think of yourself as dirt, and you, and you don't see it in light of the value God has placed on you, well, then that's a mistake. And if you think of you're all that, right, and, and you don't see your own sin... Well, that's not a good way to see it either, right? So you have to see both of those at the same time. That's who you are. And so 
you say like the Apostle Paul said later, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lived in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the text of Scripture. That's the attitude of the heart. That's what we should be holding together. It was a substitution by the one who loved you. And Jesus did that. And I believe that's what Philip told them. I think that that's what Philip was preaching. You're accepted by the Father. You're loved. You're adopted. I think that's what he said. And this is important. This is important. Um, That's the gospel. And that's the preaching. And that's what Philip did. And, And this is why it's so important. Because there's something he proclaimed that brought joy to the city. Right? It caused joy. So why did it cause joy? We, you know, because, I mean, that should cause joy, but there, there's joy, overwhelming joy. And, you, and you're going to see this. But, you know, in Luke 10, Jesus sent out his disciples at one point. He sent out, and he said, 72 of them. And they went out into the surrounding towns and they preached. And, and the gospel <laughs> said something happened, very distinctive, that it resulted in joy. Uh, let me read, uh, this is out of Luke 10. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, the Lord, even, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So there's a reason to rejoice, right? That your name is written in the book of heaven, right? And so there's always joy associated with the power of the gospel. There's always joy associated with it. Um, um, Why would preaching the gospel result in joy, especially to the Samaritans? All right, who are the Samaritans? We know a little bit about them. We know that in 931 B.C., we know that the 12 tribes of Israel split into, into a northern and a southern tribes, and 10 of those tribes went to the north, and, and they were called Israel, and two tribes to the south commonly called uh, Judah. And so the Assyrians were ruthless people, lived in the north, and they came in and invaded the tribes, the 10 tribes in the north, uh, called Israel. And by force... They colonized and took out the wealthy, educated, upper-class Jews. And they, they, they shipped them out into, into other places. The only, the only Jews who were left there were then, um, well, they were the leftovers. And those Jews began to intermarry with the Assyrians. So you have Jews and Arabs marrying and, and this was the result, the Samaritans. That's who they were, half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-Arab. And can you imagine? They, they were disliked by everybody, right? And, and the Jews utterly hated them, couldn't stand them. And, and to the Jews, they were just considered foreigners, half-breeds. They had no ancestry, um, in essence. They were cut off. And yet... The main beliefs of the Samaritans were very similar, much like the mainstream Judaism. And they held a common monotheistic faith in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And, and so they, but in contrast, they, they, had, they built their own temple. And uh, it was not in Jerusalem. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they claimed it a holy place. And so the Jews didn't like that. It was blasphemy and blah, blah, blah. So it went on. And so more hatred, more problems, more, you know. And yet, and we know this was confirmed by Jesus meeting the woman at the well. Right? Remember the Samaritan woman? And uh, he said to her, she said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's true. That was the, that was the point. Uh, the Samaritans shouldn't have been worshipping up there. And they should have been in Jerusalem. But, but this is why the Samaritans were considered unclean, not allowed. But here's why. Why, why did they get so much joy? Why would specifically joy happen to the Samaritans after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Hmm. Calvin and Hobbes have some ideas. <laughs> so he says, I always like to bring Calvin in here, you know, because he, he says reading a new comic book, petty, uh, petting a happy dog, you know, um, I see that all the time with my kids. Um, getting a letter in the mail, eating uh, marshmallows and hot chocolate. Um, are those really the reasons for joy? Um, maybe to some children, but at first glance, you might not notice why the joy came. But it says here that, that in verse 7, unclean spirits crying out, loud voice came out of many. Who had, many of them were paralyzed or lame or healed. And there was much joy. Now, the reason for this joy, it wasn't the miracles. It was the preaching of Christ. And here's why. Here's, here's why it has to be this. Because the, the Samaritans now for the first time realized the wall of separation was down. Right? It had been removed by Christ. Right? Think about what the gospel means to a Samaritan, a person that was considered a half-breed, a foreigner, someone with no ancestry. <laughs> right? Now the gospel it says that they're in Christ. Right? The wall between Jew and Samaritan was down. It was gone. And the wall between them and the Father was down. Right? Now they believe that Jesus had lived the life that they should have lived and died the death they should have died. And the same things that we believe, right? And now the result is they were accepted by the Father, right? They were received and they were adopted as his children. They heard that message and they said, that's what we've wanted. We've been marginalized. We've been considered half-breeds all of our life. And now we're utterly accepted by the king of the universe, by our God. And so they were assured and that was... Talk about joy. Talk about a reconciling message, right, that would come to a people group. Philip was, was God sent to them to do that. And uh, they aren't the only ones that needed to hear this, right? I mean, you and I need this. We need to hear this. We need to know that the wall of separation is gone. Right? We need to know that through Christ's sacrifice, the Father receives us, accepts us, adopts us into his family. We need to know that we're not marginalized, that we're not outcasts, that we're not just pushed aside. No, but the Father loves us beyond belief. 
intimately involved with every part of your life. Don't ever let the enemy tell you he's not. Don't ever let the enemy marginalize you and tell you you're half-breed, that you're not worth it. You know what? Even though the gospel tells you you're sinful and evil more so than you ever dare believe, it tells you also that you're valued, you're accepted, you're loved more than you ever dared hope at the same time. In the midst of your sin, God loves you. And you repent. That's the thing, that's the, that's the resource we need, isn't it? To repent. In the midst of our sin, we know there's one who receives us. Even though may, may, maybe everybody else in your life says, you're, you're a jerk. Get away. God does not. He receives us. And that's what caused the joy in the city. Now, how do we respond to that? How did they respond? Well, in order to respond to the authentic gospel, we need the Holy Spirit, right, to, to, to give us that response, right? I mean, these first Christians, like Philip, uh, they, they took the gospel to other places, and wherever they went, they preached. They were, wherever they were scattered, they preached. And um, uh, I was reading something again further in what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He, now, he was a physician who turned preacher, right? And he, he lived a half a century ago. I think he died in 1981. And he, uh, he said that the Christian church today, meaning back then, is failing and failing lamentably. He said, it's not enough to, even to be orthodox. You must, of course, be orthodox. Otherwise, you have not got a message. We need authority, and we need authentic, authentication. It is not clear that we are living. Is it not clear that we are living in an age when we need some special authentication? Um, what would that authentication be? In other words, um, when Philip preached, what, did, what happened? Signs, right? Things happened. People were healed, right? There was an authentication of, of his message, right? The gospel was true regardless, but God said, I want to note this is true, and here's why I'm validating it with these healings. And so he did those things. But today, today, there's a kind of, demonstration that we need of authentic truth and you know we see we see miracles um occasionally only occasionally mostly we see in a world we live in a world with materialism worldliness indifference hardness callousness we need a manifestation of the holy spirit um we need a demonstration of the power of the holy spirit and uh, I want to show you a little video because I think it demonstrates how we can see this is authentication of the gospel. This is authentication of, of what God wants from his people. It's, it's, what, it's a visible 21st century picture of, of a Philip going and preaching to a people who need it. Watch this little video.
here in New Orleans, you can tell that work. I just had to pull over and say something real quick. Um, as I'm delivering uh, Phillips' house, you know, he walks out with his truck and he's like, my mailbox is in this bucket. And I have two boxes full of stuff. We start walking up the driveway together and he asked me kind of to ask me how my day and I tell him how busy it was. So I had a, a really great conversation with him and I asked her the same. Talk about killing the moment. Um, she said some things. <laughs> she said, it made me sad, and yet it made my day. And, and you know that when, something, when, when you go through something like that, there's a joy, Right? There's a joy associated with it. That's what she was communicating. But she was saying, you know, it was risky. It was, it was difficult. At first, it was, God was pulling on her heartstrings. Go back, talk to that lady, pray with her, pray with her. 
Show her the love of Jesus. And when she did, right, she said that, she said that hug <laughs> was the most genuine hug she had received in a long time. So she got back. <laughs> she got back an embrace. She got a joy having gone to share the gospel with someone else. And that's what we're talking about. How, how do you respond to the gospel? You, you respond like Amanda did, right? You say, Lord, I know you're tugging on my heartstrings. Use me. Let me, let me be a blessing. And in that, you, you get blessed. You just do. It just happens. Um, can you imagine if every Christian did that? If every one of us, when we felt the pull of the Lord, the Holy Spirit saying, say those words, go take their hand, pray with them. The fact that she turned around and went back to that neighborhood, pulled up. Can you imagine this big FedEx truck? You pull up and you shut it off and you go up to the door and you, and you, you knock and you're just waiting for her to come down the stairs and come and open the door and, and, you, and you're just saying, Lord, I don't know if this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know. And, you just, and you're warmly greeted and hugged and, and there's tears and there's prayer and there's the blessing of the Lord. This, this, is, this is what we're, do, we're told to do. This is how the Lord uses us. I mean, it's, it's usually not glory moments, okay? It's, it's, it's little moments like that. No one would have known that happened. But she posted it, and over 19 million people have viewed it, okay? And, and, and that's the point, is that people, I, I love that. I want to see that. I want to share that, because that's what we should be doing. And, uh, you know, 19 million, make it 19 billion because we should all learn from that and see, you know, this is what Christians ought to be doing. You know, you know God never changes. He's immutable. You know, he's the same today as he was a billion years ago. And, and what we see in Scripture is what he is. And, and if we preach, as, preach Christ as Philip did, Philip did then, then we ought to bring much joy. I mean, it just has to happen. J.I. Packard said, if, I, if our God is the same as the God of the New Testament believers, how can we justify ourselves in resting content with an experience of communion with him and a level of Christian conduct that falls so far below theirs? You know, in other words, why don't we hear more stories like the FedEx worker? Why don't we see more things like what Philip did? Why do we settle for so little power or so little of God? Why? And the, so the obvious question is then, do you lack joy? Because, you know, that's where joy comes from. You know, she's still telling that story. People are still watching that story. And because those are the kinds of glory moments, right? You just relish in those. You say, God, you came through. You made an impact. You did what you said you would do. Um, how are you? Uh, I mean, let me ask you this. Is your life characterized by joy? 
if you're a believer or you're, or you're not a believer, does, does, your, does your life characterize joy? Are, are you joyful? Um, I don't mean that you're consistently happy, you know. I don't want you to fake it till you make it. I don't, you know, I don't want you to just put on a happy face. Um, what I want to know is, is your life so centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ that others would say there's a joy associated and a peace associated with your general demeanor? It's just, in general, that's who you are. You just seem to be a joyful person. Um, so if you're not a believer, um, these words of Scripture have to impact you. The Holy Spirit has to apply these to your heart. And I want to introduce one last Scripture before, I, before we move to the table. In Romans 5.8, Paul tells us, he's writing, he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you, did you hear that? It's through Christ we've now received reconciliation. That means we're in right relationship with the Father. That's how it happens. It's because Christ died while we were still sinners. If you're waiting to not be a sinner to come to God, you're going to be waiting a long time. Come to God as a sinner. That's the way we all do it. It's the only way to do it, right? And he comes to you and says, you're a sinner but Christ died while you were sinning. And we have now, you've now been reconciled by what Christ has done. You've been made right by what he has done. You know, and this is just a gift you receive. Right? You just take hold of that and say, yes, Lord, I believe that. I want that. And that's, that's in that moment, that's how you become a believer. That becomes real, so real to you that you, <laughs> you begin to act like Amanda. So real to you that you begin to be tugged on and used by God in the lives of other people to be a blessing, to just say, Let me, can I just pray for you? Can I just love you with the same love that I know I have received from the Father? That's what it's about. Um, there's more that I could talk about but how will we have joy? How will we have joy? Even in the midst of difficulty, how will we have joy? I want to be a part of a church that brings joy to the city. And so as we, as we approach the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper, we are approaching this table because of what Christ has done, not because of what we've done. Um, we're, we're approaching it because of he invites us to come. Um, he invites sinners to this table. Um, uh, I know we have some of those here. But he also invites you because 
That's, all you, that, that's the only way we come, right? We come as sinners. I say that, I, I was kind of jokingly saying you can invite sinners, and some of you are, but you all are. And, and I hope you see that because this table, this table isn't for the righteous. It's not for people who say, you know, I've got it together. I don't need a physician. Uh, it's, it's for those who are sick and needy and needing forgiveness. Um, and so Christ promises in this sacrament to be present, to impart grace, um, you know, we wonder why we why do we do this sort of thing? We do it because we're we're to observe the body, the broken body, and the shed blood of our Savior. We think about that very focused thinking. Why did he? Why was his body broken? Why was it? Why was he pierced? Why 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 did his blood shed? Why why did it pour out for me? Um, and when we think about those things, we we, we remember. The sacrifice that was for us, right? And we just know that that took place for me. That took place for me to cover my sin. We start applying it to ourselves. Now, that's what Christians do when they approach this table. If you're not a Christian and you say, I've never done this before, I've never taken communion, um, I don't even know if I'm a believer. If you say that today, then my encouragement to you is to stay where you are in your seat and pray and say, Lord, what does it mean that Christ died while I was a sinner? What does it mean that um, I've been reconciled to you? I want to know that. I want to know what that means. I want to be in relationship with you. Uh, I I am sorry for my sin, and I want to be in relationship with you. That's it's a simple prayer. It's a simple heart prayer. It's not you don't have to use fancy words. There's no formula. It's just you saying, God, I want you. I want you to come, show up, visit in a big way. May you do that, Lord, in this place.